at that time, but we're going to go ahead and get started on things this evening because we have a lot to cover as we look at Psalm 110. So if you take your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 110 as we continue to consider Christ's threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. And in particular this evening, we're going to be considering how both the offices of priest and king are combined here in Psalm 110. But before we go any further, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that uh, Jesus shines brighter. Jesus has more glory than anything that this universe has. Father, he is the one who makes the woeful heart to sing. Father, we find in Christ an all-sufficient hope. But Father, we very quickly admit and recognize that in our own hearts, we find other things wonderful, more wonderful than Him, Lord. That our own hearts are, are easily idle fa- factories, and we constantly go after lesser things. And so, Lord, we thank You for opportunities like this where we can sing songs that uh, focus on the glories of Christ, that we can focus upon the, the wonderful hope that He is. And Lord, as we look to Your Word this evening, as we seek to hear from it and, and be encouraged by it and challenged by it, Lord, may we seek to be changed by it uh, in all things. Father, work in our midst through Your Spirit as only You can. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. All right, teens, you can head on back. And we're looking at Psalm 110, Psalm 110, and uh, we're again continuing looking at these threefold offices of prophet, priest, and king that Christ uh, has. And we've been spending time looking at the priestly office, and in particular, uh, hashing out and discussing the, the person or the sort of mysterious cryptic figure in Scripture that we looked at last week called Melchizedek. And I mentioned that Melchizedek is mentioned in Genesis 14, what we looked at uh, last week, and, and there's really not much said about them, him. Uh, we do know that he is the king of a place named Salem, and uh, we, we, we looked at the possibilities of that referring to Jerusalem, and he was sort of the one, maybe the first king of a city that would have been Jerusalem. We saw him going out and meeting Abram and the king of Sodom uh, in a valley, uh, the Valley of Kings, where uh, he who was a priest to God Most High, El Elyon, he was who, who a priest to God Most High, um, received offerings from Abram. Abram worshipped through him, and he blessed Abram. And then we don't really hear anything more about this figure, Melchizedek, again until we come to the Psalms, and particularly this one instance here in Psalm 110. Now, it's interesting, if, if you were to think about the term priest, most likely your, the images that would come to your mind would be that of the Levitical priesthood, particularly if you've grown up in church and you've seen different things uh, put out. I think perhaps today we might think of a priest as somebody who walks around with one of those clerical collars and always has the, you know, we think of the Roman Catholic priest, and, and we will address the issues with that idea down the road. But, um, but that's, if we think about it from a biblical perspective, we think of this person that has all these garments and has to go through all these rules. We think of Leviticus and we think of the Levites and all those different types of things. And we typically connect the priestly office with a man. 
But there's a fundamental problem with that, particularly in light of this passage and with what we're seeing about all of these offices, prophet, priest, and king, and that is that can man ever fully fulfill those offices? It's what we were created for. Adam and Eve were created to be those who stood before God as priests, those who handled His words and were accountable to that word, and then they were to exercise dominion over the earth. They, we were created to fulfill these roles, but because of sin, we are not able to. And so no man has the ability to fulfill these roles. Now, Psalm 110 is an interesting psalm. It is thought that this would have been a coronation psalm. Um, as you know, there is a new monarch reigning in England, and they haven't had the coronation ceremony yet. I think it's scheduled for sometime in the spring. Uh, but there's a, a lot of pomp and pageantry and, and a lot of different things that go on there when the king is officially cor- coronated as king. And so this psalm may have been something that was used by Israel's, um, by Israel's kings as something that was sung at the coronation of a king. There's also some who would say that this is a battle hymn uh, and that this would have been something that was sung as Israel would gather together against its enemies and go out to battle. They would focus on this. And I think what's important to note here is the focus of this psalm is speaking of how we can hope to have a lasting kingdom. How we can hope to have a lasting kingdom. See, the temptation that we face in looking to try to establish anything here on earth is to look to our own ingenuity, our own strength, our own power. If it was a coronation, um, it would be a temptation for People to say, well, this king must be wise. He must exercise uh, his wisdom and his power to reign and to, and to come together. If it was a, a battle hymn, there would be a temptation to place hope in the power of the army and to place hope in, in a number of different things that, that they had prepared for battle. And that was the thing that was going to save them. And, you know, we can look back thousands of years and see how that worked its way out among Israel, but have things really changed that much today? No. We, we think that we're going to be safe because we have the world's greatest army. We, we look to political figures and we think that their wisdom and their ideas are, are going to be the thing that's going to bring about you know, change in our nation from a political standpoint. The temptation has always been, since the devil tempted Adam and Eve, the temptation has always been to place our confidence in ourselves. But this psalm strikes at that idea and calls us to find hope for victory grounded in Christ's priestly and kingly work. So I know we've been sort of focusing on just the priestly role, but this psalm sort of brings the two roles together. And so there's going to be a little bit of overlap with what we're going to look at, I don't know, maybe, maybe sometime this year, if not next year, at the kingly role that's given. But I think it's important for us to recognize how this points to Christ. In Matthew, Matthew describes the Messiah, the Savior, the one who is coming to save Israel and be their king. And Matthew describes his birth. He describes in, in Matthew chapter 3 or Matthew chapter 4 his temptation. And after his temptation, after that had happened, Jesus begins his public ministry. And his public ministry 
was cons- consisted of two main calls, or one main call in, in, in particular. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we see that Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, so turn from your ways. Why? Because what had come? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king had come. The priest had come. And so what we see here in Psalm 110 is a focus on how Christ is going to be the one who comes and fulfills those roles. So look with me in Psalm 110. We'll read through the entire psalm and then we'll come back and I'll make some uh, comments about it. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. So there are four things I'd like us to consider that this psalm points us to. And if you were here when we were preaching through the Psalms, this is essentially the same message that I preached when we looked at Psalm 110. But some things are worth repeating. And this Psalm in particular is worth that. Um, There is no other passage in the Old Testament that is either alluded to or referenced directly than Psalm 110. It is the most quoted and most alluded to passage in the New Testament. So should it not then occupy our attention? All right, I I think it certainly should. And so we're going to look at four things about this. The first thing we're going to look at is the kingdom's foundation. Now, this psalm is what we call a chiasm. So we're typically, in in our Western society, we're used to following things from start to finish. And so there's an order at which we go. And so the beginning of a thing is the beginning, and the end of the thing is the end. And And so if we're going to make a point, one of the things they talk about in speech is you start off with a propositional statement. You start off with your the main thing you want people to get off or to understand, and you understand that at the very beginning. Well, that's not how the... Um, ancient Israelites thought. And so what they would often do is they would look to put the main point in the middle of the psalm so that everything that you read up until that point drove to it and that everything that you read after that point was a result of it. So that's what we call a chiasm. It's based off of the Greek letter chi, which is an X. And so in the middle of the X, you have the joining together of those two ideas. So really what we see is that verse 1 is going to correspond with verse 7. Verse 2 is going to correspond with verse 6. Verse 3 is going to correspond with verse 5. And where's the main point? Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. 
after the order of Melchizedek. So what we see is that the main point, the thing that this entire psalm is built on from a structural perspective is God's oath that he would make towards the one who would come, David's Lord, that would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This forms the foundation of the kingdom. So remember Jesus comes saying, repent, why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what forms the foundation of that kingdom that Christ is calling us to? It is the irrevocable oath of God that Christ is a king after the order of Melchizedek. So we see, first of all, this is an irrevocable oath. The language that David uses here is startling. It is strong. It is some of the strongest language we see in the Old Testament. Yahweh has sworn... And then besides that, he adds a second point. He will not change his mind. Now, whenever we think about swearing that we're going to do something, that there's, a, there's a commonality among us that we swear by something that is greater than us. You know, and then oftentimes, like in, our, in our, our justice system, if you're going to give a testimony, you're going to swear on the Bible, which means you're swearing on the authority of one who is higher than you, which is God himself. And so what we find is that the foundation of the kingdom in which we find our hope, it's built upon an oath. Now, who is it that's making this oath? It's Yahweh. The Lord has sworn. Now, here's the question. When someone swears, they generally swear upon something that is greater than themselves. Is there anyone greater than God? No. And so this forms for us an understanding of the irrevocable nature of God's promise. We see in Genesis 22, so if you have your handouts, Genesis 22, we see God making oaths particularly to Abraham. He says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is after, and it's interesting, this is also associated with a priestly work that Abraham is doing in offering his son Isaac. In response to that, God says, I have sworn by what? Myself. He swears by the only thing that is great in this instance. It's him. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, he brings this together. He says, when God made a promise to Abraham, he had no one greater by whom to swear. So who did he swear by? Himself. Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having waited patiently, I'm sorry, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their desires, an oath is final for confirmation. So look at what the writer of Hebrews is arguing here. He's, in, he's referencing what God said in Genesis 22, but the same thing is happening here in Psalm 110. When God wants to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guarantees it with what? An oath. So that by two unchangeable things, 
in which is it possible for God to lie? No, it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have what kind of encouragement? Strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. There is a wonderful hope in this reality that we have a God who has sworn by Himself to accomplish and to establish His kingdom. For Israel, this psalm is calling them to place their hope in that reality. God has sworn an oath. Is it possible for God to lie? No. In fact, so certain was the, were the patriarchs of this promise that God had made to Abraham that Joseph, we come to the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. And in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph is there in Egypt. His brothers have come to Egypt. And Joseph doesn't know everything that's going to happen, but he knows that for the time being, the family of Abraham is setting up camp in Egypt. And what does he say as he's about to die? Look at Genesis 50, 24 through 25. He says to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you. And he will bring you up out of this land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so he says he made his sons swear of, made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. So guess what I want you to do with my bones? Take them with you. Now, this promise wouldn't happen for generations to come, but yet Joseph was so sure of the oath that God had made that he was willing to entrust his bones to the children of Israel so that they would bury him in the promised land. Why? Because God had sworn an oath. Now, that would be enough, would it not? God swore an oath. The Lord has sworn, but David goes even further here in this psalm. And he says, and he will not change his mind. To emphasize the importance of this promise, to emphasize the certainty of this promise, David focuses on what God says, that he will never change his mind. God is not like us. I mean, how many of us change our minds? We change our minds like that, like it's no big deal. And look at what's said in Numbers 23. God is not what? Man, praise the Lord, God is not like us. In fact, the greatest mistake that we can make is to assume that God is like us. That's the essence of idolatry. God is not man. And what is man like that he should lie? Or the son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not what? Do it. Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Do do you understand why this psalm, and particularly verse 4, forms the foundation of the rest of everything that's said here? Because everything else that that this leads up to and everything that comes out of it before and after verse 4 focus and are dependent upon this reality. The promises that are made here, the victories that are promised, the enduring kingdom, they all come down to the fact that God has made an oath and doesn't change His mind. 
Praise God he doesn't change his mind. And so the foundation of the kingdom is that it is concrete. It will never fail. Well, God's irrevocable oath is founded, secondly, on an unchangeable office in Christ. And I have the wrong term up here. I have the eternal kingship. That's supposed to be the unchangeable office. I have no idea where eternal kingship came from. We have an unchangeable office. So what is the unchanging promise that God has made? You are a priest, how long? Forever. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is this one that the Lord is swearing to? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And, and if this was a coronation hymn, you might be tempted to think that it's referring to the king who is being coronated, but no. In fact, if we could just look quickly at verse 1, who is God talking to? Yahweh, all right, David's God, says to David's what? Lord. Now, this is a, this is a striking statement. How could there be anyone that David would call Lord besides God? Because he was, he was at the top of the food chain, if you will, in Israel. He was king. What king did David call Lord? And the answer, as we know in the New Testament, is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is David's Lord. And so there is an unchangeable office given to Christ. What is that unchangeable office? And this is what I find interesting. If this was a coronation hymn, or even if it was a a battle hymn that that would have been sung or, or recited as they went out to battle, you would think that it would focus on the kingship. And there are elements of that here. But he doesn't say you are a king forever. He says you are a what? A priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's interesting here. Jesus in Matthew 22, I'm not going to read it for lack of time, um, but you can see there in the the reference there on your sheet that that Jesus makes a specific point of saying that David spoke of somebody who was greater than him. He spoke of his Lord. And, of course, this came in response to the Pharisees who were disparaging what Christ said. Had said. Now, God makes a promise that Christ would be a priest, or this David's Lord would be a priest forever. Now, there, there's, a, there's a big difference between Christ's priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, right? Because the Levitical priesthood, was there any Levitical priest that held that priesthood forever? No. Aaron died. The the high priests were constantly dying over and over again. No one held that unchangeable office, but it is Christ who does. And in fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20, the writer of Hebrews points out that it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. How, how How did someone become a Levitical priest? They became a Levitical priest not because 
God said, you know, made an oath that you will be a priest. They became a Levitical priest because they were born into it. But this one, Christ, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and then we have the writer of Hebrews quoting Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And so the writer of Hebrews now hashes out the significance of this. This makes Jesus a guarantor, a, a, a down payment. He is someone who gives surety of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by what? Death. From continuing in office. But Christ holds his priesthood how long? Permanently. You know, there are lots of glories and lots of truths that we find that are encouraging about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that it gives us hope beyond death. We know that, there are, that it inaugurates the, the giving of the Holy Spirit as He ascends to the Father. There are, there are a multitude of blessings that we have with the fact that Christ raised from the dead. But what the writer of Hebrews is pointing us out here and what it does is it shows the fulfillment of, of God's promise to the Messiah and how Christ would die and yet still be able to fulfill this role. Christ died, but He is still alive. As the writer of Revelation, as John says, he sees Christ and he identifies himself. Behold, I died and yet I live. So what does that do for us? Look at verse 25 of Hebrews 7. Because of this, as a consequence of this, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always, what? Lives. To make intercession for them. This passage provides a bedrock foundation of hope for us who look to Christ. We know that we are accepted before the Father, not because of what we have done, but because of our high priest who will never move from that position. He is a priest how long? Forever. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the great hope of God's people, those who dwell in His kingdom, those who have repented because the kingdom of heaven is in hand, who have found Christ to be their king, our great hope is that our priest remains priest forever. These words should call us to abandon confidence in ourselves or in anything else. For there is no one else but Jesus Christ who fulfills this role. But not only is it an eternal priesthood, an unchangeable office, but it is, thirdly, a superior priesthood. This is the fact that Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so I'm not going to belabor the point here because we're going to look at it a little bit more next week as we look at Hebrews chapter 6 and chapter 7 and see the significance that's pointed out by the writer of Hebrews about Melchizedek. But the main point that is focused on here is the fact that Melchizedek 
is a member of a priesthood that is greater than, that is better than the Levitical priesthood. And Christ, having been given a promise by the Father for eternity that He would be a priest after Melchizedek, He is one who remains forever and He ministers as a priest, not in a temple like the Levites do, but where does Christ fulfill His priestly office? In the very presence of God the Father. We see this in Hebrew, not Hebrews 9, 24. Hebrews 7, 11 talks about how um, there's no perfection attainable through the Levitical priesthood. And then Hebrews 9, 24, Christ has entered not into holy places made by hands, which are copies of the true things, but where has Christ gone to fulfill His priestly work? Into heaven itself. At this moment, to appear in the presence of God, on whose behalf? On our behalf. What a glorious hope. So notice what becomes the foundation of the kingdom. It's not us. It's not our leaders. It's, it's not, it's not the, the, the best pastors that you can find. It's not the best authors that you can read. The foundation of the kingdom is not based upon the most engaging or, or powerful church ministries that we find today. Our hope in this world is certainly not to be cast upon political powers, the strength of our armies. Where is our hope cast? It's hope that is cast upon the truths found in verse 4. God has sworn He will not change His mind. Christ is a priest forever. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is what binds us together as a people. This is what gives us hope that we as His people, if we come and draw near to God through Him, He is able to save us to the uttermost because He is always living to make intercession for us. Which brings us then, secondly, to the kingdom's people. The kingdom's people. The kingdom is found and independent upon the priestly work of Christ. But what is the result of that? What is the focus of the kingdom of Christ? Now, I fear that to some extent we have focused on the wrong thing. The kingdom does involve physical land promises given to Abraham. And I truly believe that those things are still to be fulfilled fully. However, the greater promise of the kingdom is not a place, but it is a people. That Christ serves to bring together a kingdom of priests. In fact, one of the things we're going to look at as we get further on in our study in, Revela- or in, in the, the priestly office is that one of the joys we have is that God has brought together people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation and made them a kingdom of priests to God. And so what we find then is what are these people like? And we see this in verses 3 and verse 5. 
It says in verse 3, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. What we find is that kingdom people look to Christ's power. This sort of emphasizes what we looked at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 4. How do we serve each other in the church? We look to and we do it through the power that God provides. And so this is a reality that the psalmist is pointing out here in Psalm 110. We see, first of all, that looking to God's power enables us to sacrifice. Look at what he says again. Your people offer themselves freely. This is one of the reasons why some people look at this psalm and think that it is referring to a battle hymn. Because ultimately, what is a soldier willing to do? What is he willing to offer in the sake of providing for and fighting the enemy? He's willing to lay down his own life. And so what we find is here, God's people having confidence that Christ is a priest forever, they say their lives are forfeit. We can... We can give away our lives because we have the power of God giving us promise that we will always be accepted before the Father. We don't offer an offering of grain. We don't offer an offering of of a bull or a goat. None of those things can truly please God. What God wants is all that we are. He doesn't want our stuff. He wants us. And so we see that emphasized in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present what as a living sacrifice? Your bodies, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul understood this. Philippians chapter 2, verse 17, he spoke about he was poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, and, and he's, he was glad and rejoiced with them all. Paul was, was overjoyed to offer himself for the cause of Christ. So what, what are God's people like? They're people who offer themselves as sacrifices to God. Which, again, we talk about the point of the Christian life is to be made like Christ. What is the main thing that Christ did? He offered himself for our sake. And so we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to Him. So we look to God's power. Looking to God's power enables us to sacrifice. And then as we look to God's power, we anticipate the demonstration of that power. Look at what he says. We offer ourselves freely on the day of your power. We expect it to happen. See, here's the reality that we find. Jesus has died, risen again, and ascended to the heaven. But what has He promised? If He goes to prepare a place for us, what will He do? Return. And when He returns, there ain't nobody who's going to be able to fight against His power. He will come back as victorious King. And that is a wonderful hope for us. We anticipate that day. In fact, we, saw, we see Revelation 4, 10 through 11. The elders around the throne of God, they fall down before Him who's seated on the throne. They worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive 
glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is not like up to debate. It's reality. And on the day of God's power, He will appear and everyone will see that. And His people will rejoice. Because we're on the winning side. The victory has been won through what Christ has done. So it enables us to sacrifice. Looking to God's power enables us to sacrifice. It anticipates the demonstration of His power. Thirdly, it produces transformation. Notice what the psalmist says in Psalm 110. What type of garments are we wearing? Look again in verse 3. In holy garments. In holy garments. We are standing in holy garments. No longer do God's people stand in this life clothed in the tatters and filthy rags of their sins. But rather... We are able to, through the priestly work of Christ, have our unclean clothes removed. The stain of sin is washed white as snow by the blood of Christ. And we are arrayed in the beauty of holiness. In fact, this idea, these, these holy garments, it literally reads in the splendor of holiness. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. God is proclaimed holy, holy, holy three times. We look throughout God's Word, and the thing that separates us from God is His holiness. So how can we who are sinners commune with a holy God? And the answer is through our great high priest, through the one who will never change to be our high priest. Look at what Psalm 29.2 says. We are to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. We're to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In Revelation chapter 6, we see the martyrs who have died for the sake of Christ. And if you look through there, they're crying out. They They want God to avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth. And then in verse 11, what are they given? They're each given what? A white robe told to rest. And so there's wonderful hope in that reality. And then we see, fourthly, as we look to kingdom people, look to Christ's power, is that God's power provides sustaining vitality. Look at the rest of verse 3. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, it's an interesting statement that he's saying there. From the, from the um, womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The idea is, as you're looking out over a, a vast valley, and, and you see the morning come up, and, and there is a, a coolness that comes on a cool spring day, and the dew comes up on the earth, what does that dew provide for the grass of the field? It provides nutrients, provides sustenance. It's, a, it's an imagery. It's a pastoral image filled with, with life and vibrancy. And so knowing that God has settled these truths through by, by swearing an oath, we now are filled with sort of that early morning vitality that he's referring to here. He talks about how the womb of the morning points us to that, and then the dew of our youth will be yours. 
I'll tell you what, I've mentioned before, I turned 40 this year. The dew of youth is fading fast. Right? The older you get, the less energy you have, the, the less gusto you have. I would love to go back and have the energy I had in my, in my late teens and early 20s. You know, we know what that's like. And we see how as time goes on, we lose that energy over time. And the, the hope of us as we walk as pilgrims through this earth, as we walk as those who are part of God's kingdom, is that we are sustained by a power, that a spiritual power that makes us like we're young again. Like we're able to continue on. So kingdom people look to Christ's power, but then also kingdom people look to Christ's presence. And we see this in verse 5. This this first phrase would be such hope to a newly inaugurated king. It would be such hope to an army that's heading into battle. Who's at your right hand? Yahweh. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. The echoes of the first words of this psalm, but the focus, this echoes the first words of the psalm, but the focus is different. Instead of the Lord saying to my Lord, speaking of, of Yahweh speaking to Christ, now He speaks of how, how Christ is at the right hand of the king or the right hand of the army as they go to battle. One of the greatest hopes we have as believers is that Christ has promised to Never leave us nor forsake us. We know that passage well. It's in Hebrews chapter 13, 5 through 6. And, and we, we typically focus on, on what's said there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But we don't think about the first part of that verse, which calls us to have a life that is free from the love of what? Money. And that also calls us to be content with what we have. Listen, what what kind of connection does freedom from the love of money have to do with the presence of Christ? Because we have everything we need in having Christ Jesus. Everything we need. And so, so we keep our lives free from the love of money. We find contentment because we have the hope that Christ is with us. He never forsakes us. So that we can confidently say now as we walk through this life, God, the Lord, is my helper. I don't fear what can man do to me. That's the very essence of what is being said in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. And listen, the kings of this earth, the nations that are raging against Christ and against His kingdom, they will be shattered on the day of His wrath. If you were to go back and read Psalm 2, I suggest you do it tonight. It describes Christ as as laughing in heaven as the nations rage and the heathens imagine a vain thing, saying they're going to cast off Christ's kingdom, they're going to cast off His rule. God's up there laughing because He's going to hold them in derision. He will break them as a potter's vessel and shatter them with the rod of His rule. And so the, the point of such vivid imagery of destruction upon those who rise themselves up against Christ is kiss the Son. 
pay homage to the Son. Find blessing in the Son. So these are the kingdom's people. A people who look to the power of Christ, a power that is promised to endure eternally through the promise of verse 4, and a people who look to the presence of Christ to guide them and direct them in all things. Which brings us thirdly to the kingdom's endurance. We see that now we have more of a focus on the kingly role than we do the priestly role when we look at verse 2 and verse 6. He says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule where? This is what's interesting. Where does Christ rule? In the midst of His enemies. What we see, first of all, is that the kingdom endures despite opposition. Again, we we talked about Psalm 2 and how Psalm 2 spoke of, of nations raging against Christ. There is an animosity in this world system against the Lord and against His people. The world hated Christ, so what are they going to do with us? They're going to hate us. And it can be easy for us to see the seeming power of the world in the backdrop of all these things and think, boy, we seem to be really being defeated. You know, I... In our theology class this week, or this past week, I don't know if it was that this past week, yeah, this past week, in our theology class on Monday, we talked about the quote-unquote state of theology in the church today, and it's not good. There's a, a, a Ligonier Ministries in conjunction with Lifeway Christian Resources released a new study, 2022, and, and things are worse than they were in 2020. They do it every two years. And we can see that, and we can... We can be downtrodden and, and feel like there's no hope. But notice, based upon the eternal promise of God swearing that Christ will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that provides a hope that Yahweh sends forth from His dwelling place from Zion a what type of scepter? A mighty scepter. A scepter that allows Christ to rule in the midst of His enemies. We see Daniel focusing on this in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He is the one who changes times and season, seasons, and he's the one who does what? Removes kings and sets up kings. Listen, this election that's coming up in November, you know, we tend to want to put a lot of hope in, in you know, oh, Maybe our party will gain more seats. And that will be the saving grace of America. Look, who puts the people in Congress where they are? God does. Who places the president where he is? God does. Yes, he uses our votes, but he does it. And so there's a wonderful hope that even though the world rages against Christ, God is still ruling in the midst of His enemies. I think of this in light of what Pilate said to Jesus. You know, you see that scene in G- Jesus isn't answering Pilate, and Pilate looks very, you know, very prideful at himself. He's the Roman pure curator of, of, uh, Samaria, of Samaria and, and, um, and the Holy Land there in Israel. And, and so he's like, don't you know that I, 
have the authority to grant your life or to take it. And, and Jesus, I, I mean, I can't, I can't imagine that Jesus didn't say this without a smirk on His face. He says, you have no authority over me unless it's granted to you from heaven. Christ rules in the midst of His enemies. He has a mighty scepter. He is the one, as Proverbs 21 tells us, who has the heart of the king in his hands, and he turns it like waters wherever he wills. Even think of the promise made to Jesus by the, or to Mary by the angel. He said, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. This is Luke 1, 30-33. You'll conceive in your womb. You'll bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He shall be great and will be called. Now, here, here's something that I think we miss. Son of the Most High. What was Melchizedek a priest for? A priest before who? God Most High. And what does Jesus receive from the Father? The throne of His Father David and the reign of Christ that He has over the house of Jacob will be what? Forever. His kingdom, there will be no end. And so Paul will say things like we see in Philippians chapter 2, that Christ who humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, He's risen and been highly exalted so that at the name of Jesus, how many knees will bow? Every knee will bow. In heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can even see that victory there in Revelation chapter 19. I won't read it for time's sake because we're out of time and I still have one and a half more points to get through. (laughs) What we find is that this kingdom endures through just and righteous conquest. And you can see this in verse 6. What does Christ do? He will execute judgment among the nations Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This focuses on the reality that Christ wins the battle. And it is not pretty for those who rise up against him. Which brings us finally to the kingdom's establishment. Very quickly, we see again the kingdom established by the Father's decree. Again, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ will sit at the Father's right hand. And here's the thing, this has already happened. Christ at this moment is sitting at the right hand of the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 God never promised any of His angels that He would sit at their right hand until He made His enemies a footstool. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says to to the high priest, You've said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated where? At the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul tells us that Christ is raised from the dead and He is seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly 
places. And that he who is the radiance of the glory of God in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the exact imprint of his nature, who the one who is upholding the universe by the word of his power, after he made purification for sins, what did he do? Sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And Hebrews chapter 10 focuses on this again. That when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So we have a high priest, as Hebrews 8 tells us, one who is seated at the right hand of God. Do you see the connection between the conquest of Christ and his priestly work? The Father has sworn, and he says to David's Lord, who is Christ, sit at my right hand. Which we see then finally that this is established through the Son's victory. If you look at verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This is an interesting statement. How does this focus on Christ's victory? Well, there's some people who would connect this to Gideon and how Gideon had the soldiers drink. I don't think that's the connection here. I think the image is of a tired king. Or, and maybe not tired isn't the right term. A king who has finished a battle. And he, he walks at the end of that battle and he looks for refreshment. And what does he find? He finds at the brook by the way a place where he can drink and he can lift up his head in victory. Full victory being accomplished in the fact that he can now kneel down and take a drink knowing that the battle is won. I think this makes even more clear the connection with Melchizedek because when did Melchizedek come out to meet Abram and the king of Sodom? What was it after? It was after a battle. It was after a war. And so we see even in Melchizedek's coming a glimpse of the final victory of Christ where we will be able to rest in Him who has brought such a great triumph. So fully dependent on what Christ has done we find victory in Him, and we, with Him, will lift up our heads in triumph. Triumph given to us in our great high priest. The one whom the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Oh, there's so much here that is given to us. May it, may it convict us to not depend or rest upon ourselves or anything else but you. Thank you that you have sworn by yourself and that Christ is this priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thank you that we can now be a kingdom of priests through Christ. We pray this in His name, pleading His blood.
Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.